Well, good morning, church. Whoa. Good morning, church. Wow. You guys alive? Man. Um, as I was thinking uh, before I got started, I th I'm pretty sure that the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's is the least desired Sunday for any preacher to preach. Um, there's really, there's really, it's, it's kind of depressing. People are down. The numbers are down. The holidays are over. The reality of work is setting in. The reality of school is setting in. Everything back to normal life. And it's like, bleh. And I, I kind of sensed that as I first said good morning. And I heard, good morning. Half of you aren't even awake right now. Um, the majority of you probably stayed up for the Ohio State game late last night. I know I did. I'm feeling it this morning because of that. I'll never do that again. That's the rookie mistake on my part. It's one of the things I'm learning on my internship. Don't stay up late for the football game. You've got to get up early the next morning to preach. But it's good. It's good. Because here's why. Because with, the, because with the end of the holidays comes something new. A new year. And right around the corner comes that new year. Because this is the Sunday that within, within just a few days, for many of us, it's this idea of, man, I, it's hope. There's, there's, there's this uh, idea of, of longing for something new. It's a new beginning, a new start. For some of us, we hope that some habits die. For others of us, we hope that some habits begin to flourish. And for many of us, as we go into this next year, we hope that this next year, this new year, is the year in which it's the year of the underdog. Where the underdog finally comes out on top. Whether it's in family relationships, friendships, finances, school, work, habits, temptations, addictions, whatever it may be. We have found ourselves continually down and out with little to no victories to speak of over the last year. We find ourselves as the perpetual underdog. The consistent, the constant, if there's one thing consistent in your life, it's you being an underdog. It's me being an underdog. But here's the thing about this, is that everybody loves a good underdog story. There is, there's, there's this idea of magic in watching a person or a team inexplicably defeat their opponent, defying all the odds. And in the same way, there's a sense of awe, a sense of inspiration, a sense of hope, when you hear about the stories of broken relationships being mended together. Forgiveness given when there had been none offered before. Anger released. Temptations conquered. And we love these underdog stories. Because if each and every one of us are honest with ourselves, there has been a moment in time, maybe the majority of time, in which we consistently find ourselves as the underdog in life. You know, the best, maybe even at this point in time, a cliched story, as Janae kind of hinted at before, the story of David and Goliath, the underdog story of all underdog stories. We as humans, not, not even specifically Christians, but humans in general, love going to the story because the story gives us hope that someday, maybe, a miracle will happen in our lives where we can stand above and we can conquer our giants once and for all, and find that permanent relief. And so we go to the story of David and Goliath, 
where David, this youthful, this, you know, we're told that he's the youngest of eight brothers, and that only three of his older brothers went into battle. Well, the fighting age for Israel at that time was, was 20. So if we're assuming that those who were old enough went into battle, that would mean that four of his brothers are still below 20, and that he's still the youngest of them all. So maybe, maybe David's sitting at 15. And then we have Goliath, this champion warrior, far larger than any other Israelite soldier, coming out defying the odds. We're told that he, his coat of armor, get this, his coat of armor alone was over 120 pounds. David probably doesn't even weigh 120 pounds. And yet he's coming up against Goliath, this, this man who has been fighting since he was a youth. And we read this story, and we're like, man, I hope I can be David someday. I hope I can have the courage and the, and the, and the braveness to step forward and face my giants. But here's my question. Here's my question. Aren't we tired of always being the underdog? Aren't we tired of always having to identify as the underdog? Always hoping, man, I just hope a miracle is going to happen. I hope this new year is a year in which I conquer everything that's in front of me. Man, I'm just hoping for the best. Hanging on by that string, just hoping maybe by some chance this is my year. Aren't we tired of always having to hope for that slight chance, that slight uh, opportunity to defy the odds. So my question then is, what if the story of David and Goliath wasn't even an understory, an underdog story to begin with? What if all of a sudden this story becomes perfectly explainable, perfectly rational, perfectly understandable? And what if all of a sudden we were no longer able to identify with David because of his underdog status? I mean, this is, this is why we love this story so much. We love inserting ourselves into David's spot and then taking the giant in front of us and inserting into Goliath's spot. And then we simply hope that God somehow, some way, divinely directs a measly stone from our little slingshot of life and takes care of business for us. What if this wasn't a story about an underdog at all to begin with? But if David actually isn't an underdog, how else are we able to relate to this story? What is the application for us in this story? Well, as we walk through this story, probably for the thousandth time for many of us, whether you're a Christian or not, we've all heard this story. We all get the premise of it. As we walk through this story again today, I hope to show how defeating Goliath was not the most important victory had that day, nor was it the only battle that God was involved in that day. That David never saw himself as an underdog. So neither should we. And that at the end of the day, there was a driving force that motivated David to approach this giant, and regardless of the results that were to come, victory in his mind was already had. We've heard this a thousand times. We've heard this so many times. Since I've been here, I, we, 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 we've heard this. We don't fight 
for victory, we fight from a place of victory. And when we begin to understand these points, that God was involved in so much more than the slinging of a rock, that David never saw himself as an underdog, and that there was something greater beneath the surface that was going on. When we understand these three points, all of a sudden, we can begin to identify with David, not as underdogs, but as men and women that have allowed God to saturate our lives so much that a new year isn't so daunting, but rather a new year is full of opportunities to see God do amazing things, both in and through our lives. So let's get started. As we jump into Scripture today, the very beginning, we start in 1 Samuel 17, the beginning of the battle, and here's what we read. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So this is setting the context, the setting for what David is now entering into, for what the Israelites are experiencing. So if we understand this, I had, this was amazing, uh, this past summer I had the opportunity to, to go to Israel. And this is one of the places we visited. And I, when you look out into the horizon, you see one hill over here, and we have one hill over here, and in between them is a valley. Just as scripture said, whoa, that's crazy. Um, and, and as you watch this, you know that with the Philistines on one side and the Israelites on the other side, that whatever side decides to advance first, they're going to be stuck in the valley. Well, guess what? When you're stuck in the valley, that leaves your opponents with the high ground. Exposing all of your weaknesses Exposing you to just be taken down Almost rather quickly So at this point in time We have the Israelites and we have the Philistines And then we jump into first, the, verse 16 And it says this For 40 days the Philistine Being Goliath came forward every morning And evening and took his stand So this is what David Is entering into David this 15 year old boy has been sent on a mission From his father to make sure his brothers are doing okay and he enters into this camp, and he comes in, and there's really not a whole lot going on. And he, he walks in, and he's like, okay, like, I'm going to go up to the front lines. I'm going to give my brothers this message. But man, something, something's a little off here. I came to expect battle and war and, and blood and whatnot, but nothing is happening. I got the Israelites, my people over here, just chilling, chilling like villains. And over here are the Philistines. Nothing's happening over here, but then something happens. In the midst of these two sides just chilling, this Philistine, the giant Goliath, comes out, and he starts challenging the Israelites. And David's like, wait a minute. What? Something's odd about this. Why, why is no one doing anything? And here we see the very first thing that David has to overcome. Because right now, he is surrounded by leaders, people who are older than him, people who are stronger than him, and all they care about is not approaching this giant. All they care about is like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going down there because this is perfectly fine with me. And they have this, this sense of this peace about them. As they, are sitting, as they are sitting on this hill, they're saying, why do I want to go any further than this? They're not coming after me. I'm not going after them. No death, no blood, no pain. I'm good. And even though that the giant was coming out and defying them and offending them and challenging them, they're like, we're good right here. 
because no pain is had. They had this, this, this false sense of peace. This idea that if they didn't move forward, they never had to risk anything. And that if they could just sit there for the rest of the time, then everything would be good. The Israelites would rather have the, the giant offending them and challenging them and intimidating them than actually approach the giant head on. There was this apathetic approach because there was a false sense of peace. And David enters in, surrounded by his people. And so we see the very first thing is that he's going to have to first overcome the Israelites' apathy on moving forward. But this isn't all that David has to first overcome. We read in 17, 8 through 11, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the people of Israel were dismayed and terrified. And so as David walks in, not only is there this, this false sense of peace, this apathy on moving forward, but now he has the problem itself standing in front of him, saying essentially this, I am a veteran at what I do. I am an expert in my field, and I have taken down people far bigger, far stronger, far larger than you. Come at me, I dare you. Challenge me, I dare you. So now he's dealing with the apathy of his people, the intimidation of the, the, of the enemy himself. But that's not it. We keep on going. And so when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, David speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. But David's like, What have I done? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. So here we have the intimidation of the enemy, the intimidation of the giant, the intimidation that looms over the ranks of Israel, and David's like, let's go. We gotta do something. We gotta do something. And then his older brother comes up. His oldest brother, his kin, his blood, says, who are you? My youngest brother to come up and say and start talking arrogantly. You're just naive. You're insignificant. Go back to the sheep. Go back to where you belong. You are nothing compared to this giant. And we begin to see, man, there's something, there's something strange about all of this. Something is going on. David is surrounded not only with the enemy himself speaking threats, with boldness and with confidence and with a sense of power, but he doesn't even have supporters in his own camp. He's wondering what exactly is going on. I'm just here wondering why you people who've experienced the victories of God in the past aren't willing to experience the victory of God now. But then there comes even a further moment in time. We see this.
King Saul says this. You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from youth. David is surrounded by continual discouragement. Continual, like, what are you doing trying to go against this? What are you doing trying to ruin what's just well enough and trying to, trying to stir up a new anger inside of our enemies? We don't want them coming after us, and we certainly don't want to go after them. And then there comes another point in time. Again, this, this, it keeps on continuing. Then Saul addressed David. So I, There comes a point in time where David's like, you know what, I'm going out there regardless of what you say. So Saul's like, fine. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. You see, all of this is leading up to say one thing. There are battles to be fought before the battle. There are battles to be fought before the battle. We all have our giants. We all have our issues. We all have our struggles, our desires, what we want out of this life, what we want out of this new year. But the world would say this, that if no harm is happening, then don't bother with it. If things are mostly managed, why stir up anything unnecessary? The world is satisfied with this false sense of peace that keeps potential pain at bay, all the while preventing real, authentic, truly fulfilling life from being had. The obstacles of apathy when family, spouses, siblings, friends, bosses, coworkers are content with leaving well enough alone. The obstacles of doubt driven not only by those in our camp, not only by our enemy, but even within ourselves. The enemies of doubt, the obstacles of doubt, these are the battles that must first be fought before we even get to the giant in front of us. Understanding who we are and what we have been called to. But then, even if we get through these obstacles, when we realize that false peace is no substitute for experiencing a full life, we must fight the temptation to follow the rest of the world and how we fight our giant. We hear and read and watch so much that tells us how to live our best life now. Just like King Saul attempting to give us the armor to go and fight our battle, our giant. And this armor, it's not, it's not inherently bad. But when we decide to solely rely on that, on the armor, instead of relying on God, the armor only serves to hold us back and weigh us down. This diet, this new diet, this new resolution, this, this new money-saving method, this job, this new relationship, all of these things that are inherently good, but when we first when we put them first, are the very things that cause us to stumble when approaching the true giants of unforgiveness, dealing with pain that has been dealt to you, but also the pain that you've dealt to others, and so on and so forth. We try to put this armor on, just like, you know, King Saul, he, he was giving this armor to David, but it was the very armor that he wasn't willing to put on himself to go defeat this giant. So he, and yet he still expected it to be good enough for David. 
But David knew that there was so much more than just armor that was going to defeat the giant. So the question is for us, what in our lives are acting as a false sense of peace? Keeping you back, keeping me back from making progress and moving forward with our life. What's keeping you along the side of your hill with this false sense of peace, thinking if I just sit here, everything is going to be okay? And what new secrets, what new tricks, what new gimmicks are you trying that are preventing you from simply trusting in God? There are battles to be fought before we even get to the battle. And so many of you right now, you're thinking to yourself, okay, if David isn't the underdog in the story, then I don't know how any of this explains that away. I don't understand how all of this leading up, this just weighs against David's case. In my eyes, he's even more of an underdog than I first understood him to be. But here's the great thing about this. As we continue, I believe fully that David did not see himself as the underdog. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's not that he had a false sense of peace in regards to like he was stronger or more mightier than he actually was. I think he fully understood the, the, the danger of what he was walking into. If we look here, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. That's not really a great starting line for me. I don't know why he would start with that line. I would start with something completely else. But he says this, When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David was comparing this battle not as some easy thing to do or to conquer. David saw this danger. He saw the danger of it. He compared it to fighting a lion or a bear. This wasn't something that was going to be easy to overcome. And yet, he looked back on the blessings that God had given him. He looked back on how God had prepared him. He looked back on what his life, whether he realized it or not, had trained him for this very moment in time. He was able to look back on his life and see the victories that God had granted him. He had no doubt that all of this training would prove itself in this next battle. He had no doubt that God had been with him in the past and that God was still with him now. Furthermore, he knew his own ability. He knew who he was. Like I said before, he started with this line of, I've kept sheep, I've, I've washed over them. He knew what it took to take down a giant. We see this because, like I said, I was in Israel for three weeks this past summer. And in visiting this location of where the Philistines would have fought Goliath, we also went down to the brook the brook in which David would have gathered those five smooth stones from. And they've done studies on this brook. They've done studies on the rocks there. And when it came down to, now I don't know about you, but when, growing up, 
this, this, this story, I always imagined, because I wanted, to, I wanted to imagine the extravagance of it, I always imagined David picking up these like five little pebbles, these five little round stones, maybe about a quarter size, that he was going to right to the Goliath's head. But I come to, found out, come to find out that uh, the, ba- the, the stones, the rocks, were more of like a baseball size. And that the sling that he was using wasn't just a slingshot that he's like, and hoping for the right shot. Rather, the, the sling was, this, was the, were these two long cords, right? And at the end of it was this leather pouch. And inside this leather pouch, here goes this baseball-sized rock. And he would be spinning this sling. And right when he would get his target, he would release one of the cords, and that rock would... And they've done studies on this. And at approximately 78 miles an hour, this rock comes flying out of the sling. Now, th- th- I watched a TED Talk on this. They believe that when someone got good at slinging these rocks, they could hit a target up to 200 yards away. Two football fields at 78 miles an hour with a baseball. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be standing in front of a guy with a sling and this rock coming at 78 miles an hour aiming for my head. And we know that David wasn't 200 yards away. We know that he approached Goliath. We know that he came up and talked to him. So I'm thinking maybe this end to this end, and David's like, let's go. Come on. David knew his ability. He knew what it took down to take down a lion, to take down a bear. He's not going out there with his armor that's just going to weigh him down. He's not going to get within a five-foot reach of this guy because, well, he's just bigger than him, Goliath was. She so was like, I'm going to stay right here. I have my sling. I have my rock. This thing, now because kids are in the room, I'm going to keep the details minimal. But just imagine this bad boy. It's real. This bad boy flying at your forehead. Now, the, the Bible tells us that it sunk into his forehead. Now, you can interpret that how you like, but when this baby is sinking into a man's forehead, things are going down. There's a whole lot more than just a little pebble bouncing off and the guy falling down. This thing is doing some damage. And so we, we see this. We see that David, he, he's confident. He knows his own ability. He knows what God has blessed him with. He knows his own skill. David never once saw himself as the underdog. He knew exactly what it took to defeat this giant. In fact, I would compare this. They say that, you know, when this thing comes out of the sling at 78 miles an hour, the size of a baseball, it has the stopping power of a 45 caliber handgun. David didn't bring a sling and a stone to a sword fight. He brought a gun to a sword fight. He knew exactly what he was doing. And then look what happens. Look what happens in verse 45. In in the beginning of 46, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David not only knows what it took to defeat the giant, David not only knows that this, this other stuff wasn't going to get him to where he needed to be. He speaks to the giant. He speaks to the obstacle in front of him, to the issues, the pain, the struggles that were in front of him. He speaks into it and says, you will not have control over the situation anymore. 
Because I come to you in the name of the Lord, and in the same way that the Lord has delivered me in the past, he would deliver me today. He spoke in to the attack with aggressiveness and confidence and intentionality to set the stage for what was about to happen. He spoke with faith, conviction, and and assurance. Goliath had had control for way too long. David came to take it back. There is victory to be known before the battle. There is victory to be known before the battle. David recognized that the the victories that he had had experienced in the past, and he had recognized the victory that was to come. And for us at this very moment in time, we have to ask ourselves, are we looking back at our life to see how God has blessed us to this very moment in time? How has he brought you out of battles in the past? And are you speaking confidence into your current giants, not allowing them to continue to maintain control of the situation? Are you trusting that God continues to work in your life? So often, we get caught up in looking at our problems, at our obstacles, at our own giants, and we simply lose focus. We, just like the Israelites, Forget all of the ways that God has provided. And yet all he is calling us to do is to not lose faith. He isn't calling us to do anything new. He's simply saying, look what I've done in the past. Let me continue to do this now and in your future. How are you looking to see how God has worked in your past to allow him to work through you now? And the thing about all of this is our true victory is already had. Our true David, Jesus Christ, has defeated the ultimate giant, not as an underdog. And so the question is, are you remembering this ultimate victory in the midst of your daily giants? There is victory to be known before the battle. David never saw himself as an underdog, despite knowing the seriousness of the problem at hand. Because he knew how God had been working and continued to work. And so as we continue, we see one last thing in this story about David that made him stand out from the rest of the Israelite soldiers. So let's go back real quick to verse 24 and 25. And we see this. Whenever the Israelites saw the man... They all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. But the king, King Saul, will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. And will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. You see, David and the rest of the Israelite soldiers are being offered the riches of being married into the royal family. They've been offered this this new sense of freedom, this new sense of relief. They're going to have zero taxes if someone defeats this giant. But David, David wasn't motivated by this. We see see how it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. He did not need, nor did he seem interested in what the king was offering. In 46 and 47, 
we see something that motivates David even more. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistines' army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by might or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David had one motivation. David had one motivation. He comes out in here, he says, this day I will take control of this situation and I will gain victory, not for my own glory, not for my own wealth, not for my own relief. Today, victory will be had so that the world, so that you, so that my camp, so that everyone around will know that there is a God in Israel who saves, who works, and who will deliver victory. David's sole motivation is to go out and simply do one thing. Glorify God. David wasn't out to show off to get the glory for himself. He wasn't out to hold victory over others. He wasn't looking for the riches. He wasn't looking for, for the, the relationship. He wasn't looking even to provide for his family. He simply wanted to glorify God in the midst of facing his giants. There is motivation to be had before the battle. There, is battle, there are battles to be fought, there is victory to be known. There is motivation to be had. And I think it's super important that we recognize this. At the very beginning of 46, we see David say this. This day, this day I will get victory. The Philistines were not going to be the only people that would have come against the Israelites. David's motivation allowed him to approach this day to glorify God. And when David comes up against another giant later on, that motivation would still be the, the, the same, to glorify God. So the question is, what is your motivation? What is your motivation to defeat your giant? To overcome these issues in front of you? To conquer that desire that you so long for? Are you looking for revenge? Are you looking for justice? Maybe, maybe a peace, a permanent peace from, from all issues of pain and struggle. Are you looking for wealth or freedom? David had one motivation, to show the world the God of Israel. You have anger. You have pain. You have lack of forgiveness. You have temptations and addictions. You have pride. And right now you wish you could just be done with all of it. But God is in the business of working his, through his people for them to experience the victory of demonstrating his glory. Not necessarily the victory of defeating the giant, but demonstrating, experiencing the victory of demonstrating his glory. This is what drove David to fight. He wasn't concentrated on himself or the immediate relief that would come from conquering his giant. He simply wanted to demonstrate the glory of God. 
Now you ask, what does that mean? That's so ambiguous. What, is it, what does it mean to glorify God? What is God's glory? Well, I think probably the simplest answer to that is this. To glorify God is to represent his very nature to the world and to experience it for yourself. To experience and to live out his love, his joy, his peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the victory. Regardless of your giant, this is your victory. And it is a motivation that will continue through all of your giants in this life. So that you can say, this day, this day I will have victory. You can say, this day, every day. Not just today, not just in the year to come, but that this day and every day that I can say this day, I will come out here and I will defeat my giant so that God will be glorified to the ends of the world. So that your family, so that your friends, so that you, yourself, me, would know that there is a God who is active, who is living, and who is working. This day, Goliath approached for 40 days, twice a day. 40 days, twice a day. There are things in your past, your present, and will come in your future that will approach you, that have been approaching you. Maybe, maybe for the last 40 hours, throughout this holiday season, something's been approaching you, controlling the situation. Maybe for 40 days, 40 weeks, or maybe even for 40 years, you have been struggling. All you could hope for is relief. And you have let them continue to rule your life. You've let them to continue to stay on that edge of the hill, keeping you from moving forward. Keeping you from actually experiencing a true, fulfilling life. Never letting you move forward and progress. Maybe it's certain sin struggles, addictions and temptations that you have, you have to conquer. Maybe it's family issues. You've been hurt. You have hurt. Your parents, your spouse, your kids unreconcilable differences that have divided and separated. Maybe it's something that you just desire so badly. A relationship, children, a healthy marriage, financial security. The question is not how you can conquer these, but how in the midst of them, how can you display the glory of God to the world around you? When our motivations go beyond ourselves, they naturally drive us further. If this is all about you, if this is all about you, that, that motivation will, will, will fade away. If this motivation is all about you and you seeking your own relief, it will simply fade away. And you'll soon become just like the rest of the Israelites on the side of the hill saying, eh, uh, the risk is too great for me. I'm not going to do it today. But when it becomes about the people around you, will your motivation be to show everyone around that God is more than enough to take this step forward? What you do with your giant, how you act towards your giant, how you respond to your giant affects those around you who see and how they experience God. What you do with your giant affects how those around you see and experience God. 
This story of David and Goliath, it is not the story of an underdog. Let that be known. It is not a story where God only worked in one single moment to declare victory for David and the Israelites. God had been working all throughout David's life, allowing him to be prepared for the giant that would one day come into his life. God worked in him so that when the time came, David would have the necessary resources, character, and motivation to display God to the world. This isn't a story where we can identify as an underdog. It is a story where we are called to identify with allowing God to continue to work in our lives and prepare us for the giants that are, that are, are inevitable to come. I'm not going to stand here and say that God ordains all of these giants in our lives, that God plans, that God has specifically said, this giant is going to go into his life, this giant is going to go into her life. But I will say that God works in us so that we are prepared when those giants do come, so that we can find our true victory in sharing the glory of God to the world. His love, his peace, his joy, his patience, his kindness, etc., etc. His truly fulfilling life in the midst, get this, his truly fulfilling, fulfilling life in the midst of the giants. Not only after they have been conquered. We get so caught up in wanting to, the pain to go away, the giant to disappear completely. But it, there will always be sources of pain. We live in a broken world. There will always be obstacles and battles. There will always be giants. And if all we're searching for is the permanent absence of giants, we will always be searching. But God would have us experience his victory at all times, regardless of the presence of giants. This, this is what we should be identifying with. Anyone can experience victory once the giant has fallen. It's being able to experience the victory in the midst of the pain. This is what separates the people of God from everyone else. This is what separates the Davids of the world from the Eliabs and the King Saul's. Being able to experience victory in midst of the battle. There are battles to be fought. There's victory to be known. There's motivation to be had. And so for some of you today, you're sitting here like, well, Justin, this is all fine and dandy. Uh, I'm living a pretty good life right now. I don't really have many giants in my life. So I'd ask you this. How are you encouraging the Davids then? Who are facing their giants? How are you moving forward? How are you standing up beside the man who is fighting his giant right now? How are you encouraging them? Or are you just like the rest of the Israelites and King Saul and Eliab, the oldest brother, saying, you go do this on your own. I'm good with where I'm at. And then there are some here today who are saying, I simply don't know how to keep going. I don't know how to fight anymore. Maybe you are even saying, I have no past relationship with God to look back upon. I don't know if I have the strength. Then brother and sister, then sinner, like the rest of us, whether it be for the first time or for the thousandth time, let us all cry to our true David. Jesus Christ, that the same way that David would deliver all of his lambs from the jaws of the lion and the bear, let us cry to our true David, our Jesus Christ, to deliver us from the giants and trust in him alone for our salvation. We find one last example. One last example. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, this is, this is uh, the Apostle Paul who, writ, who wrote most of the New Testament. And he says this, Or because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, in giant after giant after giant. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He the Apostle Paul continued to experience victory. Not because the giant was defeated and he never had to deal with it again, but because each this day, God's grace was sufficient. So that the Lord would be made known, Paul became content, relying on the strength, the power, and the grace of Jesus Christ. The true victory is not you following the giant Rather, it is the world around you seeing the power of God in your life. And if that means that each day we must get up and fight our giant all over again for us to display God's power, then let it be so. And let us go together to stand together to fight our giants together as one body, the body of Christ, with one spirit moving forward the kingdom of God, not as underdogs, but as continual victors in Christ. Will 2020 be the beginning of when you take on each day, each week, each month, and say, this day, the world will know, my family will know, my friends will know, that you yourself will know that there is a God, and he lives and is doing a great work. This time next year, this time next year, think a year ahead of now, this time next year, as 2021, not 2020, as 2021 comes around the corner, and you look back at 2020, what will you see? A year of victory or of apathy, self-doubt, and the wrong motivations? I will fail. You will fail. We will all fail throughout the year. But in the midst of our failure, we reach back into our shepherd's bag and we strike again. Not simply to conquer, but to display. And even if the giant continues to get up, we will continue to fight and display and continue to experience victory. We approach our giants because the Lord has already done the greatest work in our lives. And because we know if that God is for us, who can be against us? The victory isn't that you no longer have to deal with the problems and desires and struggles. The victory is that you yourself and the world around you will come to see our God. Will this be your 2020? The start of a new year, the start of a new decade. And so today I would invite you to stand with me. I would challenge us all on this. Are we more concentrated on proving a point 
Are we more concentrated on, on, on immediate relief? Are we more concentrated on destroying our giants so that we can stand over and say, I destroyed you? Or are we, are we more concentrated on saying, God, I simply want to display you to the end of the world. So this year, with, with dysfunctional families, lack of financial security, pain, struggle, lack of forgiveness on your end and on the end of others, will 2020 be the year in, you, in which you say, God, give me the strength to simplify, to simply glorify your name. Let that be your anthem this year. And so, Father, we come to you now, standing before you. God, we beg, we plead, we ask for your strength. We ask that you remind us of all the things that you've done in our lives to lead us to this very point in time. And we ask for the right motivation. We ask for your strength to keep on fighting, to say that this day I will gain victory to glorify you. God, be with us in this next year. Help us to go out and fight our enemies. Help us to experience your glory, your love, and your power, and your majesty. And share that with the world around us. Father, we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week.